0: I invite you to open your Bibles to James chapter 1, verses 13 to 18. This is God's holy and inerrant word. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. that we should be a kind of firstfruits of His creatures. Father, we pray now that Your Spirit would speak to our hearts and minds, that we may receive Your truth in Christ's name. Amen. Well, since we've been looking at James... The topic uh, that we've been discussing is very fitting for our times, particularly as we came through years uh, with the pandemic and things like that, um, that we face trials in our world. We face them daily, individually. We face them as a church. We face them as a a nation. We face trials of various kinds. It, It seems, one person said, that life is just made up of one trial after another, and that was James's world. Life was riddled with multifaceted trials. And that's why he's spending so much time discussing this issue. James knows that trials, if, if, we, if we understand them correctly from a biblical worldview, asking for wisdom, they can bring about spiritual maturity. That's why he says that we can count them all joy. However, James is no fool. He also knows that a trial can be taken two ways. You can view it as a test and, and turn to God and count it all joy. Or you can view it as a tragedy in your life, turn away from God and cave underneath the pressure. Uh, we've been looking at counting it all joy. Well, now James will address that concern. He, he turns our attention from those who endure and pass the test And receive the crown, as verse 12 says, to those who are about to abandon the effort. He turns from those who are victorious in trial to those who are on the the very verge of failing. See, if you're struggling to count it all joy, struggling to fix your eyes upon Jesus, struggling to even ask for wisdom, much less apply it in your situation, James now has a word for you. And so what he's doing is basically turning from trials to temptations. And I understand, that word for temptation is the same as the one used for trial in verses 2 and verse 12. The word can mean a test or trial or a temptation, and what happens is the context determines what the meaning is. And so what James is getting at here is that the outward trials that we face can become inward temptations. Uh, The trials you face in this world can very quickly, if you're not on guard, seeking God's wisdom, become the occasion for sin in your heart. And so in the midst of any trial, you're faced with a decision. Uh, Will you persevere or will you give up? And give in. So, when your circumstances are difficult, will you submit to God, or or will you actually blame God? And so, you see that the same trials that we face can produce endurance, can produce spiritual growth, can be something we count it all joy, or they can produce sinfulness and spiritual decay. There's no neutral ground here. Uh, Either you will live in the world of verses two. To 12, and counting it all joy, are the world of verses 13 to 16 that we're looking at now. It's interesting as you consider this, only one verse, in just one verse, James moves from a world where all of life's circumstances are seen as a means of helping us grow, even crowning us with life, as we read. Uh, to one verse happens and then to a world where the same circumstances cause us to stumble, tempting us to sin, bringing about our spiritual demise. And so the same trial has the possibility to bring about two different outcomes. Uh, you could look at it this way. There's kind of two voices that are speaking, that are crying out in, in the midst of your trial. The one is the word of God, and it cries out to you saying, endure this trial, persevere in this trial. It's all for your growth, and it comes from God, so obey him. The other voice in the temptation is temptation, and it cries out saying, look, you're not going to get through this, throw in the towel. Just disobey, avoid the pain if possible. You'll never hold up under pressure. It comes from God, so blame him. And it's the second voice that James is dealing with here, the voice of temptation. Now, what we're going to do is look at three points. The first one, the source of temptation, we're going to spend most of our time on, and then we'll quickly look at the last two. But we're going to look at the source of temptation, the process of temptation, and then where our strength comes from to overcome temptation. And so the first, the source, where do temptations originate? When we fall into sin, whose fault is it? Who's to blame? Uh, who to blame for temptation is actually the heart of the passage here. That's what he's going to discuss, and and James knows our hearts all too well. He knows that we always want to pass the buck to place the blame somewhere else. Think about it. We often place the blame. Um, in, in, in the surroundings around us. this is what our culture does all the time. It's always someone else's fault. We blame other people. Um, we blame our psychological makeup. We say, oh, well, that's just the way I am. I can't help it. With the circumstances that we face, I wouldn't act this way if, if my situation in life was just different. Or maybe you've heard Christians say, well, I, I, I really was trying, but the devil just made me do it. And so passing the buck has come, and that's a normal practice, and it's nothing new. It's actually been going on since the very beginning, since the Garden of Eden. You remember the story there. God confronts them. Why? Because they gave in. They fell into sin. They were tempted by the fruit. And and he asks, have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? And the answer is simple, yes. But that's not what they say. Adam says, well, the woman that you put here is the blame. And Eve says, well, it's the serpent. He's the blame. And so do you see, there's this passing of the buck. There's nothing new under the sun. Eve blames the devil. Adam blames Eve. Uh, but that's not all. Notice that Adam blames more than just Eve. I, I, I want to take a second here. The woman you put here, he says. The woman you put here. He blames God. He points out, he points to Eve, and, and then he points up to God, and he says, you're to fault if you didn't put this woman here. And so is it God's fault? I mean, that's what Adam was saying. What's his role? What's God's role in temptation? Think about it. We've been talking about the sovereignty of God, that all things come about because he ordained them. And, and, and so Nothing takes place apart from his ordination. So is God tempting you? Is he the one? Is Adam correct to point to God? God put him in the garden. God put the tree there. God put the woman there. He, he allowed Satan to enter paradise. One writer said, to err is human. To blame it on the divine is even more human. Blaming the gods was actually typical in, in, in practice, the pagan mindset at biblical times. They, the pagans uh, blamed God because the gods of the pagans were vengeful. And, and that mindset ended up creeping into the mindset of the Jewish thinking since they were dispersed among the nations. Evidently in their misery, says Ken Hughes, certain people began saying God was tempting them to fall that he had lost patience with them and was deliberately bringing them down. And so God was blamed for their sin. And James has something to say about that. For those who not only blame others or their circumstances of the devil, but also blame God, look at verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. If God is sovereign, he must be to blame. James believes in the sovereignty of God. If God is sovereign, he must be to blame. And James says, absolutely not. That's not the logical conclusion. You may think it is, uh, that God is responsible for temptation. Uh, Literally, James says, let no one say when he's tempted, I am being tempted by God. Let no one say to himself, Let no one say to himself, let no one rationalize to himself, let no one in the midst of temptation start thinking about it and say, oh, wait a minute, this is coming from God. It's not happening. By God, tempted by God, the word by can either connotate direct agency, this happened by God, or distant, remoteness. And James is using the the understanding of remoteness here. Not only should you not believe that God is the direct agent of your temptation, he's saying that he's not even remotely responsible for your temptation to evil. He's not even indirectly responsible for temptation to evil. He is in no way and no degree responsible for our being tempted. And James gives us four reasons why that's true. And, and he does it by telling us who God is. First, James tells us in verse 13, God cannot be tempted to do evil. God is untemptable. It's not only that he resists temptation. He can't even be tempted. God has no personal experience with evil. He is completely holy and without the possibility of sinning. And, and, And see, temptation is an impulse to sin. And since God does not have such desires, he cannot desire it in someone else. It's, it's foreign to him. And then second, God does not tempt anyone, James says. And he himself tempts no one. Uh, in, in the Greek, he himself tempts no one, period. It's not going to happen. Evil repulses God. He tests us for our good, but he never, never, never says, James, that we might sin. He never singles you out for impossible tests. That's Paul's point in 1 Corinthians 10. No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. 1 Corinthians 10.13. Not only does he not tempt you, when you are tempted, he provides a way of escape. That is the reality. He will not tempt you, period. Third, God is light. Every good gift and every perfect gift comes from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. James' point is that God operates solely in the realm of light. See, sin and darkness go hand in hand, but God and sin have no fellowship at all. He's the creator of all the light sources. And he's absolute moral and spiritual light. And so God cannot be the father of darkness, the father of sin. And so he could never test someone with the purpose of trying to get them to sin. He is light. Well, fourth, James tells us that God is unchangingly good. Look at verse 17 with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. There's no change in his character. God does not alternate from good and evil or between light and darkness. God is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. He cannot change for the worse because he is eternally and unchangeably holy. He is immutable, we would say. He is perfect, and so he can't be the source of temptation now, why does all this matter? Well, it's, it's a better understanding of our God. That's important. But the answer is we cannot claim victimhood when we are tempted and we give in. We are not the victims of temptation. The, the, the origin of your temptation is not ultimately others. It's not ultimately your circumstances and the, your upbringing. And it's not ultimately Satan. And James says it's in no way whatsoever God. The origin of your temptations come from within. It's your desire. It's not outside of yourself. It's within you. This is important. Look at verse 14. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. His own desire. The source of your temptations is your own desire. Other people, your circumstances, the devil lure you and entice you, and they do it by finding an opening in your desires. And so the reason why, why trials be, become an opportunity for temptation rather than that opportunity for spiritual growth and counting it all joy is that our desire for sin is stronger than our desire for holiness. James is saying, look, this is the heart of the matter. That, beloved, is the issue. The reason why trials become temptations and temptation brings about sin is because we despise suffering under the trials more than we despise sin. That's the issue at hand here. We hate suffering more than we hate sin. We desire our well-being more than we desire spiritual maturity. We desire to please self more than we desire to please God. We desire our comfort in this world more than we desire being made into the image of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so what happens when a trial comes into your life, into my life, we're faced with various trials, multifaceted trials, as James has been seeking of, is that we, we see them eventually, even if we don't verbalize it, as God punishing us, as it were, rather than for what they are, an opportunity for you to grow in Christ-likeness. And so we don't see them that way, and so we blame God. We point the finger at God. We say things or think things like, if you didn't put this trial into my life, Lord, I wouldn't have sinned in the first place. It's like like Eve in the garden. You know, before Eve pointed the finger to the serpent, before sin was conceived, she was given a trial of choice. She could obey the clear word of God, do not partake of that tree, Or she could follow her own desires. She could uh, obey or follow her own desires. See, normally we think, well, Eve fell because she had to decide between Satan and God. And that wasn't true. uh, Completely, at least. The ultimate issue was, will she obey God or will she follow the desires of her heart? That was the issue. And will she rationalize? Will she say to herself and try to reason within herself? Or will she submit to God's word? See, Eve sinned the moment she didn't immediately obey. And we know the outcome. She saw the tree was good, that it was a delight to the eyes, and that it was to be desired to make one wise. God said don't partake. But she started investigating and said, "Well, to make me wise, so she took of the fruit and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate." So here is Eve; she is faced with a choice. She has come to this crisis point. God has said, "Do not," but her desire for the fruit overcomes her, and so she begins to reason. Well, if God didn't put the tree here, if you know, he wouldn't want, it, want me to eat it. I mean, he wouldn't want me to stay away from it. He put it here, and I know he said that, uh, but it is desirable. Why would he give me this desire? See how she's blaming God, and so she blames him. She listens to Satan, and that test in the garden becomes a temptation, and that temptation becomes sin, which results in death. But see, she only listened to Satan because her desire told her that the fruit was more to be desired than obedience to God. The source of her temptation was the desire in her heart, not the serpent. The serpent just drew out that desire. It was her heart that was the problem. That is the issue. The source of temptation is your own desires. You were to blame I am to blame for my sin and no one else. And that leads to our second point the process of temptation. Now, I told you we're going to spend most of our time there on the first point, so these two we'll go through quickly. The process of temptation. We find in the Garden of Eden is the same process we find here in James. Look at verse 14 and 15. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And then sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So Eve was enticed and lured by her desire. She was then deceived and ate. And the result was what? Death. That's what James is saying. It's true of every one of us who gives in to temptation. It's always the same. There is no exceptions. And James gives us two metaphors to help us understand this better, to explain this point. He talks about hunting and fishing, and he talks about birth. Uh, The hunting and fishing metaphor is in verse 14. The word Lord is used of hunters who would lure their prey into a trap. That word enticed refers to bait on a hook in the water and entices the fish to clamp down on the hook. So take the image of the the fish. I I like fishing. I have not been hunting. Uh, The bait's in the water. Usually for me, it just sits there for about eight hours, and then you go home. But in this case, the bait is in the water. The fish swims by. He's enticed by the bait. So he comes back for a second look. His desire takes over him. He bites down on the bait, only to find that he's been deceived. There is a hook. And he's reeled in, and he dies. And that's what happens to each one of us. Our desires, our our lusts entice us to take a second look at sin. We're we're attracted to it. We begin to reason. And, and, And that's the point. All sin seems pleasurable, or we wouldn't take the bait. If Eve hated fruit, there was no temptation there. Right? So there was desire there. And, and so it all seems attractive, we, we want it, and, and it seems unreasonable to us that God would be against this. Even though his word clearly says it, we start rationalizing, we're deceived, we bite down on sin, sin is conceived, as it were, and the outcome is spiritual death. And that's why we have the metaphor of birth. See, once desire is awakened in our heart, it gives birth, It doesn't give birth to joy or even to sustaining pleasure. That's where the deception comes in. Our our joy lasts for but a, a fleeting moment. We bite down, we partake, and it brings forth sin. That's what it gives birth to. It gives birth to sin, which ultimately leads to death. That's the process of temptation. Desire, deception, disobedience, and then death and so how are we not to give in? We're all tempted. How do we not listen to the voice of temptation? How do we overcome it? And at least at a third point, the strength to overcome temptation. Let me begin by saying that it should be obvious that the best way to overcome your temptation it, it will be not will not be by focusing on the outward. By washing the outside of the cup See, the the ultimate source of temptation is not other people. It's not your circumstances. It's not Satan, and we know it's not God. And so you will not be ultimately able to overcome temptation if all you attempt to do is change your company or or change your circumstances or, or just rebuke Satan. All those may be helpful. I mean, if you're tempted to drunkenness, yes, remove alcohol from your house. But that's not going to get to the root of the matter. If someone's dragging you down, then yes, you should end that relationship. And Scripture says, look, resist the devil. But, but doing these things alone doesn't get to the root. The issue is your desires. And if you're going to stand against temptation, you need to change your desires. Your heart needs to be changed. John Piper, I think, says it well. Sin gets its power by persuading you to believe that you will be more happy if you follow it. The power of all temptation is this prospect that it'll make you happier. And so, the first thing to do when it comes to overcoming temptation is to not believe the lie. Sin does not make you happier. It's not worth the momentary pleasure. That's why James says, do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. It is foolish, foolish thinking to believe that sin will make you happy. Oh, it seems it for a moment. And so what you must need to do is reorient your thinking, to have your heart changed, So that that desire isn't for sin any longer, or or that it's not as strong, so it loses its power. You need that desire to change. You need to change your desire for sin with a greater desire, a greater affection. You need to be lured, you need to be enticed, but not by pitiful pleasures, as C.S. Lewis called them, uh, of temptation and sin, but by a new, powerful vision, And that powerful vision is the person of God. See, you need to be overwhelmed by the beauty and majesty of God. And think of some of the awesome things that James says here about God. He says in verse 17, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. God is a a giver of good and perfect gifts. We all love receiving gifts. Well, gods are good and perfect, And so that can motivate you to resist temptation. He desires what is best for his children. He doesn't send impossible tests. Sin doesn't come from him. Only good and perfect gifts come from God. Gifts like the good gift of salvation mentioned in verse 18. He brought us forth by the word of truth. See, temptation brings forth sin and sin births death. But but God brings forth salvation and salvation births life. The wages we receive from sin is death, but the gift, the good gift of God is eternal life, says Romans 6.23. And so God is good and perfect, and so are his gifts. And these gifts come down from the Father of light, says verse 17. And so he's not only a good God... And he's not only a giving God, and he's not only a saving God, he is the creator God. That's what the phrase father of lights means. He is the great giver of light, the sun, the moon, and the stars. But unlike those lights, which are amazing, they don't compare to him. You see, there's a day when the sun, the moon, and the stars will fade away, but God never will. Remember, I said he's an unchanging God with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. And so God's character, God's power, God's wisdom, God's love, His truth, His goodness have no variation or or shifting shadow. I, the Lord, do not change, says Malachi 3.6. And so God will always be good. God will always be giving. God will always save His people. And He will always be a God of magnificent light. And that is a Small taste of the beauty and the majesty of God. But even that little glimpse should entice us to lure you in. The point, beloved, I'll close with this. The point is you need to be more enamored with the triune God so that sin loses its grip and pull. You need to be able to say with the psalmist, Whom have ye in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. See, you need to begin believing with every fiber of your being that what I said the other week is true. Your greatest happiness is knowing God. And to know God is to love God. And to love God is to obey God. And so you must know, love, and obey God. That is where lasting joy is found. That is where sustaining pleasure is found. That's why worship on Sunday is so important. That's why, yes, doing devotions, learning about God, knowing who He is, going to Sunday school, going into a a class, talking to other believers, all these things. The importance of it is that it strengthens our understanding of who God is, that He is loving, that He's caring, that He never changes all these truths, that He is magnificent light so that our love for Him will outweigh our love for sin. And see, to do all that, to know him that way, well, then you need to know Jesus Christ. No one can know God, love God, or obey God apart from Christ. That's why Jesus came, to make the Father known. He came to give you life. See, if you think about it, Christ broke that cycle of temptation. His desires were perfect. That's why when he was tempted in the wilderness by Satan, he did not give in like Eve did. He always lived to please the Father. His desires were perfect. He was never deceived. He never disobeyed, and he conquered death. And so the cycle of temptation, uh, desire, deceive, disobey, and death is turned over by Christ. It's broken by Jesus and Him alone. And so, beloved, understand if you're in Christ, He, he replaces your evil desires with His holy desires, He, he replaces your deception with truth. He'll replace your disobedience with His obedience. He replaces His your righteousness with His righteousness, and He replaces the death that you deserve, that I deserve, um, with the life He earned by conquering death through the cross and resurrection. And so, ultimately, it's in Christ that we get the strength to overcome temptation. He literally reverses the effects of the fall. And so today's response is the same as last week's. We need to fix our eyes upon Jesus. You need to look to Jesus. Uh, Nothing greater in this world could you ever desire more than Christ. Let's pray. Father, our desires are mixed. It's easy to see this in the Word, to preach it on Sunday, but to live it is so difficult. We need your Spirit to work in us, change our hearts, change our desires that we would desire you above all else in Christ's name. Amen.